Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is the Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Hello, everyone, and welcome to you all. This is Canada's most irreverent talk show. You're listening to or watching or sensing, I guess. You might be able to just feel in the ether that the presence of The Andrew Lawton Show is upon us. But whatever it is that is your preferred delivery vehicle, we welcome you to Canada's most irreverent talk show here on True North. We are going to cover a couple of the big issues of the day here. One is particularly time sensitive with 150,000 federal public servants on strike. And if you haven't noticed a decline in what the federal government is doing, uh, it probably tells you that these people aren't doing all that much in general. But we'll talk about that in a few moments' time. And later on, I also want to get to this uh, fantastic new docu-series uh, produced in, in part by a friend of mine, uh, but that's not why I'm covering it. I'm covering it because it is a, a great product in and of itself, Exposing Canada's Made Regime. So we're going to talk about their series, Made in Canada, produced by the Kuman Brothers. That'll be coming up very shortly. Uh, but let me first just bring up here the ongoing federal public servant strike. The big uh, presence here that a lot of us are probably sensing is the Canada Revenue agency workers, which means if you haven't done your taxes yet, you still don't get an extension, even though the people that are supposed to be processing your tax return on the CRA side are on strike. But I also want to talk a little bit about the tactics here, because uh, they've been very much focused on this idea of inflicting maximum damage. And I want to bring up here one example, uh, Chris Aylward, who is the uh, president of the Public Service Alliance of Canada. He has talked about how uh, they want to start targeting the protest at what he says are not protests, the strike at strategic locations and including in the included in that category are ports of entry. And he specifically said to maximize the economic impact of the strike. And if you look right now, you'll see that the striking federal workers are currently blocking access to various federal buildings. They're blocking access to key infrastructure, including in the city of Ottawa. Now, you may be wondering, what does Justin Trudeau have to say about this? Well, here is Justin Trudeau in the House of Commons talking about exactly this. Individuals are trying to blockade our economy, our democracy, and our fellow citizens' daily lives. It has to stop. I, I'm sorry, I'm told that's not actually Justin Trudeau talking about the striking Public Service Alliance of Canada workers. He's actually talking about a group of truckers that were blocking infrastructure, he claims, and restricting access to downtown Ottawa and making Ottawa residents' lives miserable. Uh, what does Justin Trudeau have to say about the striking federal public servants blocking critical infrastructure? Roll that clip. What's that? Oh, oh I, I'm told there isn't a clip. I'm told he actually hasn't said anything about the blockades of infrastructure taking place by federal public servants. My goodness, I'm just so disorganized here. I just could have assumed he must have said something about it. I, by the way, I, I didn't tell Sean, my producer, that I was doing that bit. Uh, so Sean in the group chat right now was like terrified that he missed a clip that I was calling for. No, uh, you that was just me trying to do some uh, physical comedy there, Sean. You're, uh, you're in the clear. 
here. Even the first clip, he wasn't sure if it was the right one. But uh, that is uh, Justin Trudeau uh, saying something about the truckers a little over a year ago in Ottawa. And nothing about striking federal public servants. We know when this stuff comes up, it's all about, oh, the right to collective bargaining and the right to be heard. Uh, Even Jagmeet Singh, the NDP leader, when he was uh, trying to find a way to weasel into supporting the Emergencies Act, uh, he was saying, no, 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 I I support the right to protest for climate justice. I support workers' rights, just just not this type of protest. So uh, obviously there is a double standard here. We shouldn't be all that surprised about it, but it is interesting interesting how brazen it is. Now, let's talk about what is actually at stake here. What are these federal public servants actually pushing for here? Franco Terrazano is the federal director for the Canadian Taxpayers Federation and joins me now. Uh, Franco, they always say it's not about the money, but in this case, it really is about the money. Oh, it sure is, Andrew. It definitely is about the money. I mean, look, when you talk about government bureaucrats and union negotiators, you have to look at the full ask, pay, and benefits. And when you do that, these government union negotiators in Ottawa were pushing up to 47% compensation increase when you look at wages and benefits over three years. So up to a 47% compensation increase, and that would cost taxpayers $9.3 billion, Andrew. Just to put this into context here, by the way, we've talked, you and I, in the last few years about some of the economic hardships that have fallen on the private sector, specifically small business owners. There was a story yesterday from the Canadian press, small business owners working eight-day week equivalent, not because they love the Beatles and the idea of doing eight days a week, but because they cannot actually afford to or find the staff to cover off their shifts. That is from a CFIB report. So uh, you have federal public servants that are demanding a collective uh, multi-billion dollar raise while the private sector is still suffering. Yeah, you know, I think it's fair to say that we've all struggled over the last couple years, right? We've all struggled right now with the high price of living. But the struggles facing government bureaucrats who got to keep their job, who got to work from home, who didn't miss a pay raise, that stress is not the same as the struggles facing the small business owner, the gym, the restaurant down the street who had to take out a line of credit just to keep the lights on. Let me paint a picture for your viewers and your listeners of what the federal government just went through, okay? Over the last couple of years, during the pandemic years of 2020 and 2021, 312,000 federal bureaucrats took at least one pay raise. Okay, when you look at all the different pay raises that the government gave out since 2020, they gave out more than 800,000 pay raises over the past three years. Then let's look at the bonuses. The feds handed out $559 million in bonuses since 2020, and the feds just hired more than 30,000 new employees. So you have these privileged federal bureaucrats who didn't miss a pay raise, and who never had to worry about losing their job, now demanding billions more from taxpayers who did lose their job, who did take pay cuts, and who may even have lost their small business. I I don't know if you saw this. It was like an hour ago in the Globe and Mail. uh, Striking public servants could continue getting regular salaries while on the picket line, the union says. So uh, these are people who literally are by design, by the definition of what a strike is, not going to work and are just by default in many cases going to continue getting full pay from the government. Yeah, I haven't had too much time to dive into that. I did read the article. Uh, Now, my understanding, well, first of all, hold on a sec. Before we even get into the weeds, let's just say the obvious. You don't go to work, 
taxpayers shouldn't pay you, right? Like that. Let's just say the obvious right there. Yeah. Now my understanding well, apparently is it that is obvious, so it does need to yeah. be restated. Yeah, for for everyone who's listening in Ottawa, right? Let's restate the obvious. But so it's my understanding now that they may get okay. some of that money clawed, uh, clawed back after the strike is over. Um, but it doesn't look definitive, at least from reading the article. So a couple things that I need to point out here. The government must stop paying these government employees ASAP. Maybe there's some payroll concerns. I don't know. But as soon as possible, taxpayers should not be paying for people who are not showing up to work. Now, in the future, the government must make sure that it gets every single penny back that it paid out to these striking employees. I think that's only fair. When we're talking about the bigger picture here, uh, you know, one of the issues that really I find interesting, and you see this in the U.S., where they have, uh, if they don't pass a budget in time, they have a, a government shutdown, where the government literally shuts down non-essential services. And I've talked to people in the U.S., and they say one of the things that's the most astonishing is how normal their lives are when the federal government shuts down in, in large areas. And I, I feel in Canada, we're probably uh, going to see something very similar, where a lot of these people are not actually providing critical functions. And I think there's a bigger picture question here about whether we need the hundred and all of the 150,000 people uh, that are able to go on strike in these circumstances. Well, what do you call, what do you call it taking forever to get your passport last September, right? We've been getting subpar services from the federal government to put it mildly for a very long time here. So the issue isn't the, the service. I mean, a part of the issue, of course, is always, you know, what kind of value are we getting for our tax dollars? But we've, we haven't been getting good value from the federal government for quite some time. Now, the big issue, there's two, I'll say, is this. Number one is the tax burden, right? They were pushing for up to 47% compensation increase over three years, costing taxpayers $9.3 billion. So they want that money to come from people who have been struggling, right? The people who are worried about their mortgage payments right now, the people who are worried whether or not they can afford that package of ground beef at the grocery store. Okay. So the number one is the big tax bill if the government gives into these demands. Number two, the implied threat from the union negotiators of the tax bureaucrats has always been this. If you don't pony up money, taxpayer, that you can't afford and you don't have, you may not get your own money back at tax refund time. I think that is extremely cruel. I think it's extremely out of touch. Andrew, it's the reason I really don't think that there's Canadians out there outside of Ottawa that will have sympathy for any of these privileged bureaucrats who just took pay raises and now are making these types of implied threats to their, to their neighbours. No, and I mentioned it briefly when I started talking about this. The tax deadline is, I think, a very revealing uh, symptom here in, in that Canadians still have to live by the same rules that they always have and file their taxes on time. Well, those on the other end of it can just decide, you know what, we're not going to work this week. So there is this double standard between the real world and the public sector. Well, there's a huge difference between the real world and the government. Right. I mean, look, what just happened over the last two, three years, everyone as a taxpayer in the private sector was worried about losing their job or taking a cut or maybe even losing their business. They weren't even worried about missing a pay raise in government. I mean, the, the executives weren't even worried about missing a bonus in government. Right. And now here's how a serious government would would handle this. A serious government would actually take a page from former Alberta Premier Ralph Klein and put the onus back on the union negotiators, right? Because there's a couple ways to solve the issue of the ballooning bureaucracy, which increased by 31% over the last two years. What you would do is you would say, okay, 
We're going to find savings through attrition, reducing the number of bureaucrats, pay cuts, or benefit cuts, or maybe all of the above. Union negotiators, you have to figure it out. Either you take pay cuts or you hand out pink slips. Yeah, so I guess the, the question is, where do you think it's going to go from here? I, I know that Mona Fortier, the Treasury Board president, has said that she wants an open dialogue and all of this stuff. And, and you know, she says the union has given 500 and some odd uh, demands. And of those, you know, a few are those core sort of critical ones. Do you think the government folds here? <laughs> well, I'm not at the negotiating table and I don't have a crystal ball, but let me just point out the obvious. The only way that these union negotiators can even go to the table with these types of outrageous demands is because you have a government that doesn't care about reining in spending, that has been so frivolous for so long and has no plan to actually exercise restraint, right? Because most of us, if we went to the table and asked our bosses for some of these demands, we'd get laughed out of the office. Andrew, let me read you some of the non-wage benefits that these union negotiators yeah. are pushing for. Are you ready? They want to get paid more to work past 4 p.m. You know what most people call working past 4 p.m.? A, a normal work day, day on the job. A normal work day. <laughs> right? They want, this might be the most outrageous. They want taxpayer funded contributions into a union controlled social justice fund to advocate for progressive public policy. Now, Andrew, I wasn't even aware that there was a social justice fund until the Canadian Taxpayers Federation dug this up. They've been using the social justice fund to send members uh, to climate conferences in Madrid and Cancun. They've even used the fund to produce a report which advocates for higher business taxes. Now, you have a right to advocate for public policy, but you shouldn't be forcing taxpayers to pay for it. They want an education fund for up to $17,000 for laid-off employees. They want two weeks of paid time off. They want four weeks of vacation, folks, after just working for four years, and they want overtime paid at double time. Uh, just before I let you go, I want you to go back to this after four o'clock thing here because it's 416 now. Uh, so I don't know if I can actually shake down uh, Candace Malcolm for some more money here. Let me know. No, Andrew, I think you live in the real world, sir. You're you're not within the golden gates of government. So uh, it's not as sunny out here for you. All right. Well, I will uh, just out of the goodness of my heart, double your appearance fee today because it's after four. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. What's double zero? <laughs> <laughs> you weren't supposed to say that part out loud uh franco terrazano federal director for the canadian taxpayers federation uh, and to keep up the great work staying on top of this and holding them to account it's very much appreciated thank you andrew all right that is uh, franco terrazano always good to talk to him we are uh, gonna move into in just a moment here a little bit more of a somber topic because it is an issue that i think is one that we need to spend a fair bit of time discussing uh, in the sense that I don't believe we should allow it to fall off the radar as much as it has. But before we get to that, I just want to give a little bit of an update on a, a story we've covered in the last couple of months. The battle to replace outgoing, well, now he's he's gone, uh, gone Conservative MP Dave McKenzie in Oxford, which is a, a riding in Ontario, not far from me. Uh, Dave McKenzie 
is a member of Parler, was a member of Parliament who had for years been trying to like pass off his seat to his daughter. He was he decided that uh, being a member of Parliament should be a little bit more dynastic. So he has been kind of for years uh, deciding, oh, do I resign? Do I not? Trying to find an opportunity to get his daughter to replace him. So uh, he resigned midway through the term, uh, which is something that I don't think was unplanned on his part. His daughter tries to seek the Conservative nomination. Of all the candidates in that race, she was not at all the one that anyone thought was, was going to be the winner, despite the fact that she is a city councillor. She's accomplished. I've never met her, but I, I don't have any reason to dislike her. Uh, but anyway, she doesn't win. Arpan Canna wins. Uh, I covered on this show the disqualification of Garrett Van Dorlin, which I thought was a very bad idea on the part of the Conservative Party. Uh, but the point of the matter is that Dave McKenzie's daughter was obviously Dave McKenzie's primary candidate. She did not win. Why is this relevant now? Because Dave McKenzie has decided to back the Liberal. So he's just taking his marbles and going home and now wants the Liberal to win in the heartland of the Conservative movement, which is rural Ontario, next to... Alberta. I think we can call it the most reliable conservative seats in the country. So uh, he says that this is a reflection of where the conservative party has gone now. No, I think it is a reflection of where Dave McKenzie is and the kind of person who can just unilaterally uh, and instantly flip from conservative to liberal for political reasons is probably not someone who is ever conservative and ever someone that voters should have rallied behind. So uh, that little rant out of the way here, I want to talk about this series, which has been exposing and adding a lot of context and nuance to an issue that is near and dear to my heart for reasons I, I've discussed on the show and in writing, and that is Canada's assisted dying regime. Made is the more palatable term. Euthanasia is the one that we're told is a little bit outmoded, uh, but essentially it is the state's sanctioning and facilitation of an individual's death, which is under the Liberals getting a heck of a lot easier uh, because they are capitulating to the activists that don't believe there should really be that much in the way of constraints, even for those who are suffering from mental illness. And as we've seen in a couple of cases, people who aren't suffering from any condition but are dealing with poverty and are in need of supports and are instead being offered by a variety of public service workers uh, into the idea of MADE. Well, uh, this new docu-series is trying to shine a light on this. It's called Made in Canada. It's produced by the Cumin Brothers and Unveil TV. And I should just say, by way of disclosure, one of the Cumin Brothers, uh, Andrew Cumin, I go to church with, although I'm not doing this as a favor to Andrew. I'm doing it because it's a, a tremendous series. Uh, and I just want you to take a look at the trailer for the second episode, which just came out. First of all, um, the individual who uh, made recommendations to a veteran around uh, medical assistance in dying uh, is no longer working with veterans. That was absolutely unacceptable. I have a letter saying that if you are so desperate, madam, uh, we can offer you made medical assistance in dying. It's better than blowing your brains out against the wall. That is what he told me she said. This is a damning indictment of the government's handling of this bill, Madam Speaker. It is very well done. You can check it out at madeincanada.org. Joining me is uh, Andrew Kuman, the producer and one of the directors, Daniel Kuman. Uh, Andrew, Daniel, good to talk to you both. Thanks for coming on today. Thanks, Andrew. 
So yeah. let's start off with, with why decide to tell this story? Because it is a, a hot button issue. It is a contentious one. Why did you want to get into this fight? Yeah, such a good question. So we, I was living my best pandemic life, you know, just kind of in the blur of everything shut down and um, all that happened, you know, raising two young kids, working a full, full-time gig um, and living in Ontario. So we had a lot of um, disruption to daily life. And I honestly, I was not engaged. I didn't even really know about medical assistance in dying in Canada. Vaguely remembered 2016 that the criminal code had changed and that had some implications. But it was honestly, Andrew, because I follow your Substack and I read your article um, that you wrote about, um, you know, if 10 years ago when you went through a mental health crisis, uh, if, you know, with expansion of this new law, um, if you had gone through that today, you could have been a candidate for medical assistance in dying. And that actually shocked me. And then I started to do some research. I read some other articles and just kind of woke up to the reality of what was taking place in my own country, what was moving forward with in Parliament, and that we were on the precipice of this, this moment where mental health could become a sole consideration for doctor-assisted death. I was really shocked by that. Dan, Matt, and I, who were producing the film together, we started talking about it. It's really the setup for an incredible horror film. Like it could be this great dramatic feature. We actually talked about that. That might be a that might be a film we should do. And then realize, wow, like there's probably so many Canadians just like us, average people, who weren't aware of how rapidly this had expanded and that there's already been 30,000 deaths since 2016 because of this procedure or more and counting. And we we started asking questions and we said, we just gotta, you know get the cameras rolling, get some people on camera to talk about this, to learn more um, and see if Canadians really want this. Well, I'm, I'm humbled that I, I got to play even a, a small role in, in inspiring this. I mean, as I said, when I wrote that and in other discussions, I think more people need to be aware of it. And, and that's the challenge is that you, you can't even get to the solution phase of a problem if a lot of people in the country don't even know it's a problem and, and don't even know what, what's happening. So I'll ask you more from just the... I guess the directorial perspective, Daniel, how do you go about telling this story? How do you go about in, in not a huge amount of time putting this problem that many people may never have really heard of or only may have heard of peripherally in front of them? Well, that is the question. And if you find an answer, let us know. But um, <laughs> I think um, it's like I, I, I hearken back to when we did a film about human trafficking called She Has a Name. And it's a similar thing where you can hear about an issue and you get peripheral sound bites and you get stuff kind of flying by in, in the distance. And then slowly the sort of uh, shrapnel from the cannon fire gets a little closer to home. And for us, when we did the human trafficking story, it was when we met an actual survivor from our small hometown of Red Deer, Alberta, where we went, whoa, human trafficking is not only real, but it's on my own doorstep. Well, the same thing happened with this medical assistance and dying issue, literally almost as if I had entered a war zone when it had shifted to a narrative that within, it was actually March, 2023, that they were going to initially try to force through this um, change in the, in the law, which would allow condition of soul condition of mental illness, which they've bumped by a year. Um, and we got to do everything we can in the next, you know, nine to 12 months here to try to raise awareness about it. But it was when that happened, I guess, around January, February, I started getting news articles. I started hearing about people, connected to my own small community now in the Comox Valley that have loved ones that have used MAID, have loved ones that are considering MAID, have loved ones that are applying for MAID right now, have loved ones that are in line for when conditioned solely mental illness, they are going to be there at the front. That was such a bring it too close to home moment for me and for us as brothers as filmmakers is like, we need to tell this story because I believe when people do hear it, they are shocked because we're not talking about 
the cases that it was quote unquote initially made for in this series, we're talking about people who are vulnerable, people who have disabilities, people, their sole condition right now might be that they're legally blind and they're going to get made and they have 45 years to live. Like we're talking about these stories of Canadian veterans like Christine Gauthier, who's a five-time world champion. She's a Paralympian. She's a Canadian hero. She's a veteran. She served in Canada's military and veteran affairs on outgoing calls offered her medical assistance in dying rather than a wheelchair lift, which is what she actually needed. So these are the kind of stories that when they're put in front of audiences, I really do believe that it shifts from awareness to action. And I hope that everybody listening will realize that their voice in this conversation matters. And even a small, faint little shout from a corner of a dark room is going to make a difference in this case. When you mentioned the the case of, of Christine, which is, a, I think, a shocking one, and one that really put this issue on the radar for a lot of Canadians, all of these stories that have come up, of which there have not been a, an inconsequential amount, uh, they're not denied by the Liberal government, but Justin Trudeau, David Lametti, the Attorney General, they sort of all just say they're outliers. You know, Trudeau, I know you, you shared the clip, and it was in the trailer there. Oh, well, yeah, we, we got rid of the person. That was unacceptable. David Lametti saying, yeah, the system's kind of working. But were you finding, as you delved into this that that those were not the exceptions that those were actually the rule i think you know we're talking to physicians we're talking to psychiatrists we're talking to disability advocates we're talking to families who are left behind and i would say it is not the exception i I don't know if i'd go so far to say it is a rule but i think um but but they're not just they're not just aberrations they're not aberrations and you know i've emailed every mp in canada personally as a concerned citizen to say hey i'm concerned about made what's your stance what are you going to do about it what do you think about expansion? I didn't know if I'd get any responses, um, but I've got a lot. And um, the parties are, have a pretty packaged message. Um, they're pretty in line. I'm even hearing from uh, like liberal members that they think this is a dangerous path. Um, I think the party has been whipped to um, have a certain talking point, but I think they're, um, and what they're doing is saying this pause is almost a safeguard in and of itself. Our concern is that we'll just wait a year and they're going to just continue moving forward and that they've just used this time delay as a um, perception of safeguarding. And as we talked to, you know, people like Dr. Sanu Gan from the University of Toronto, he um, he's an incredible psychiatrist and he he's a maid assessor and he works on a maid committee. But he said he will resign from his position if if it expands to mental health. So they're like, you know, not just like filmmakers who are just learning about this, um, raising the red flag, but people who this is their their um, vocation are are saying this is their these are aberrations this is really or sorry not aberrations this is like this is alarming and um you know we've had 100 plus disability advocacy groups saying to the government please do not expand this this is a social experiment that is tragic um when you bring in people living with disabilities when you bring in mental health and we really we do think it's not um apoplectic to say that this will open a pandora's box because these experts are saying people with mental health issues who get made would have gotten better we just won't know who they are because they'll be dead just to drill down on that coalition you you allude to there people sort of expect faith-based groups to be opposed to this because they're traditionally pro-life on other issues people sort of expect i think large c conservative politicians to come out against this Uh, this is something that is attracting a resistance from people that are not just christians and not just conservatives it's attracting as you mentioned the disability rights advocates the the mental health advocates people that are not political may actually be be quite on the left and were were you finding you were able to get that diversity in, in the people you interviewed daniel yeah, that, that was probably in many ways what 
made it such an obvious, uh, well, it was called the catastrophic social experiment by someone in a testimony in Ottawa. Um, and I, I think that all of these different voices lend to that, that definition because yeah, you start to see that, wow, like everyday Canadians from every walk of life, when they hear the actual facts, not just the talking points that are pushed out on mainstream media, but the actual facts and the people who are affected negatively by this, they basically, I mean, you, you barely squeak out the national anthem when you know the truth, because it's so heartbreaking to think that this is where Canada is headed. And it's a fringe group of people, an actual fringe group of people in uh, the government in Ottawa that are pushing this and believe in this. And the expansion of it should really, should really, it should shock and alarm us to the point that we want to do something. And I think it, it can't be understated that um, every single person has not only an ability to raise some issues around this and to try to see if they can be a part of the solution and changing and curbing it, but like we have a moral responsibility as Canadians because this is a battle for the soul of our nation. I really believe that and I don't think those come up every day. I think that this is an issue that is threatening the actual makeup of who we are as a country and where it, 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 it really is a sign of where we could be headed if we don't address it. And um, hearing those different voices to your question from every different, I mean, originally we thought, well, maybe it'll be like a, a certain group of people that will kind of share our viewpoint. Well, no, it was doctors, ethicists, people in disability groups, average citizens, people in the workforce, young people, old people, you know, people that are veterans that have served our country, people from all the different walks of life. And it, it really is accelerated so fast. It's very alarming. And I, I, again, I just continue to believe that true Canadians are going to rise up and say something about this. I, I didn't warn you ahead of time that I would be giving you an assignment, but I, I hope you'll indulge me for a moment. I, I want to put up a chart from Statistics Canada here. And this is, again, government data. This is irrefutable as far as the, the government's idea is concerned. And this looks at the total made deaths in Canada over the last five years, up until the, the last year for which numbers are available, 2021. And you see every year it's going up, you know, 1,000, 2,800, 4,400, 56. Uh, 2021, 10,064 made deaths in Canada. Now that is astronomical. You compare that to some of the most liberal made regimes in the world, like in the Netherlands, which has, I, I think actually per capita fewer now, if I'm not mistaken, and I need to go back and check that. And other countries, you look at places like California and it's just a, a fraction of a fraction. Were you able to diagnose in the course of your interviews, why Canada is such an outlier here? Why Canada has become this made country it's definitely a question we're asking um california is such an interesting case study because like from a population standpoint california canada are almost similar in population and um made is uh, available there except um patients must kind of uh, fulfill the procedure themselves a doctor will set up the scenario and then the patient is the one that um, takes their own life and so i think there's a discrepancy i think that because in canada a doctor will do the procedure so i think that it's almost like the stigma of suicide is still attached to it in California. I That's kind of my hypothesis. And I think there's some writing and research on that. So I think that's one thing that we're learning. Um, I think we're, we're just like more than any other country, we have um, fewer safeguards. And so uh, I think the if you follow that logic, if we continue to remove safeguards, we're going to have more and more problems. And it's like they haven't released the numbers for 2022 yet. And we, we're expecting it will be much higher than 10,000 people. Um, so so in, just in, to interject there, so, so do you view it not as a, as a cultural or social problem, but as a, a policy problem purely? 
I think I think there's a number of things like I, I I think it's ideological. I think I think there's a policy problem as well. But I think um, when you remove the individual's hand from the procedure, then it definitely when you make it a medical procedure and you take off, you know, the stigma of taking your own life, there's something that changes with the procedure itself. And I think that, you know, even the euphemism that we use medical assistance in dying is significant and the words matter and that that's that's a definite intentional change in the language you know and this is the irony in canada it's a sad and tragic irony we have worked for decades to stop suicide at all costs mm -hmm. and now out of the same mouth the government like which has worked has worked so hard and i would and i commend the government of you know of the past present for all the work they've done to stop suicide we have a suicide hotline there's resources um but now that same that same entity is saying this is this is okay it's a totally confusing and mixed message and one that i think just the um the damage done to the um stop suicide movement is going to be incalculable yeah and and that was i mean one of the reasons i shared my own story there is that i i'm so grateful that i had doctors that said no i i'm not going to settle for uh, some young man that could have a bright future going down the road of suicide and and now you push this into the current context when suicide is seen as a medical treatment and it's seen as an answer to problems rather than the type of thing that is itself a, a problem. I'll give the last word to you on, on this, Daniel. I know your, your first episode really looks at the kind of the bigger picture of this, setting the table. Uh, the second episode, which we shared the trailer for early, talks about Canada's heroes and, and their treatment. Where do you go from here? Yeah, well, we have four more episodes in the queue, and it's worth noting it's a viewer-supported series, so anyone that feels passionate about this, you can literally help us to tell this story by going to madeincanada.org and, and getting behind us, because we really felt like for one, I, I personally wouldn't pay money as a, you know, a P, a pay per view to watch a series like this, but I would want to watch this. And so we want it to be available free to all Canadians and people in other countries as well. Um, but we are calling on those that are passionate about the stories and about the issue to join along with us and support us through the Made in Canada site. And you can do that as, you know, a one time pledge or a subscription. But the point being, um, in the four additional episodes, we're going to cover quite a broad range, but specifically we're diving right now into medical ethics so what what are the ethics of the medical profession and is this even possible to label as a medical treatment because they actually put that word like treatment on stuff and i the, a treatment that kills you is not actually by definition a treatment um it's kind of a final solution right so i think um it's it's something that we're really going to dive into is the ethical questions in the next episode we also have one that is about a very perplexing and shocking part of it. It's called ODE, which stands for Organ Donation Euthanasia. They actually promote in clinics and in um, hospices in Canada that we are leading all districts in organ donation euthanasia. And that should be something to weep about, not to celebrate. And this is truly, I mean, I, a nurse in my own town just messaged me because they know we're making this and said, guess what? They just, they just announced that we've surpassed organ donation all time, organ donation record oh, dot, 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 how do you think that happened? So they're giving it as an alternative to say, you know what, maybe, maybe you're suffering too much, maybe life is hard, but you can go out in a blaze of glory and help somebody. And that is called suicidal ideation, and that is a very, very dangerous, in fact, illegal thing, if you consider. So organ donation euthanasia is another episode we're working on, plus um, one that is very intriguing and should get people's attention. 
is uh, follow the money. What does this mean for the cost of which the, the actual liberal government said that our healthcare system is on the verge of collapse? So the people that are saying we're going to expand medical assistance and dying also said our healthcare system nationwide is on the verge of collapse. So just try to put those two together and see if the narrative lines up. That, uh, I mean, I've covered this issue extensively and the uh, organ donation dimension is not one I, I've come across at all. So I'm already learning things in the interview. I look forward to the episodes. As mentioned, people can head to madeincanada.org and that's the M-A-I-D spelling, madeincanada.org. The series producer, Andrew Kuman and one of the directors, Daniel Kuman join me now. Gentlemen, thank you so much for doing this and for coming on today. It's good to speak to you both. Thanks for having us, Andrew. Thank you. All right. Thanks again. And like I said, Andrew Kuman, I, I actually just saw him yesterday at church, but this was not uh, an act of nepotism. It was an act of celebrating uh, the production of storytelling that is very much needed in Canada. And I've always been a, a big believer in independent media. And I should just kind of add a, a bit of a caveat there that independent media isn't just uh, independent journalists. It's also independent authors, independent documentarians, people that are telling these stories that are oftentimes undertold or undersold by the mainstream media. So I, I think this was a tremendously important one and we'll, we'll follow it as the episodes progress. That does it for us for today. I want to give a big thank you to all of you who tuned in to the Andrew Lawton show. Uh, we'll be back on Friday with another edition of the program and then next week and the week after and the week after that and you're just going to be so sick of me in 10 years but we're still going to be doing it hopefully so uh thanks to you all and if you want to support the work we are doing here you can head on over to donate.tnc.news so that does it for today thank you god bless and good day to you all thanks for listening to the andrew lawton show support the program by donating to true north at www.tnc.news